Hey, it's producer Michael Miracle here with a quick word of thanks for listening to the I Work For Him podcast. It's folks like you who make this workplace movement work. That's why we strive to highlight great authors and experts who bring phenomenal insight on how to bring Jesus into your workplace. Share this podcast with your friends, family, and coworkers, and together we'll make the I Work For Him mission a success. Thanks again for listening. Let's start the podcast. You've tuned into the fastest one hour in Christian Talk Radio. I bet most of you think I record that, but no, that's live. Thanks for tuning into I Work For Him this afternoon. I just want you to stop and think for a second. The job that you hold right now where you are, no matter what you do, your work is a gift from God. It has been given to you to provide for yourself and to provide for others. Your workplace, it's your mission field. And in that mission field where you get to provide for yourself because of the provision of God, you also get to bring Jesus with you each and every day. The people that you work with each and every day, they need to meet Jesus. And you, you may be their only chance that that'll ever happen. Have you thought about this before? Each and every day, we come in contact with people who don't know Jesus. They don't know that there's hope in life. They, you're, it may be your neighbors. It could be people you go to church with. It could be people that you're buying groceries alongside, pumping gas next to. All around us are people that are searching for truth and they'll do anything they can to find peace. But they, everything they try leaves them emptier and emptier and more and more without peace. We know peace because Jesus is peace. And we need to know that our neighbors are our friends, that these people need to know that we know Jesus. We need to be living Jesus out wherever we go. So many of us have heard the story of the Good Samaritan and understanding how, who, and how is our neighbor. But today we're going to look at it in a light, different light. I'm amazed at the complexity of this story as Jesus was trying to communicate so many things. Today we're going to look at the economic impact of the story. Never thought about this before like this. The Good Samaritan lived with such intentionality that he had financial margin and time in order to minister to the needs of the desperate man he came across. So much for us to learn. Today we're joined on I Work For Him by Tom Nelson, a repeat guest. Tom's an author. He's a pulpit pastor and the founder of Made to Flourish. We're talking today about Tom's brand new book, The Economics of Neighborly Love. Tom Nelson, welcome back to I Work For Him. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you, not not next week, but the week after. I'm imagining yes. that you're going to be at that Made to Flourish uh, conference coming up on the 13th of October. Yeah, we're real excited. It's our first national conference at Made to Flourish. It's called Common Good 2017, and it's the perfect day, Friday, October 13th. So Friday the 13th is a good day. I hope people can join us. It's going to be great. How do people find out more about that conference? How, how do pastors get involved? How do people in churches get involved? How do they find out about that conference? Yeah, they can go to our Made to Flourish website, so madetoflourish.org, and on the front page is CG2017, and you can touch that little button there, and it'll show you where it's being uh, satellited to different cities, I think 20 cities around the country. It's going to be featured starting out of Kansas City, but it's going to be a great opportunity in several cities around the country that are going to be, you know, uh, sent there through a video. And every every pastor, we've got listeners from all across the globe Every pastor needs to get involved in Made to Flourish. The things that will be encouraged and learned there uh, and multiplied there are monstrously huge. Get your pastor involved in Made to Flourish, madetoflourish.org. Okay, there was our little commercial. I know you didn't plan on that, Tom, but I'm super excited that Martha and I get to be there, and I just love it. But I really want to get into your book. But first, a personal question. 
Yeah. As a pulpit pastor, as an author, as the founder of Made to Flourish, how do you and your bride, Liz, keep your marriage strong and a light to your community with all the pressures that you guys deal with? Well, I love that question, and let me just have a modest response. I mean, I think it's a daily work of grace. Uh, I've been married to Liz, my bride, for 35 years, uh, and it's a great adventure, and I think she uh, has extra level of grace and endurance putting up with a difficult man. <laughs> but we work hard. Uh, we work hard at it, and uh, you know sometimes we do better than others. But yes, I think all of us have a lot of pressures today. Uh, but uh, we really try to nurture each other, be kind to each other, try to have some time together, uh, and uh, it's a work of grace every day. But I'm grateful for Liz, and um, you know I, I think we don't claim perfection, but we work hard at uh, loving each other, serving each other, and we're deeply committed to our common work. She's a trained counselor, and I'm a, you know in a pastoral role. So our lives are full, uh, but we're grateful for God's good work He's given to us and given to us together. So it's a work of grace every day, but I'm grateful what? for her. Let's just say her endurance with me. That's right. I get that. Mar- <laughs> Martha says that to me out loud all the time, the endurance that God has given me. you know. But what I love about it, Tom, something I didn't realize about marriage is that God gives us our spouses to help us become more like Jesus. And, and when you look back at your 35 years, my 31 years, that's really what's happened. Because of being married to godly women who help us want to be better godly men, we've become more like Jesus because of them. Yeah, God's design for marriage is amazing. I mean, not everyone's called a marriage, but I, exactly. And in marriage, you can't run, you can't hide, uh, uh, and people see you as you are, but we can sharpen one another, and that's exactly right. We become more like Christ, I think, as we grow in marriage. All right, so I, I would love to introduce your book by you telling a little story. Now, this wasn't something I told you about, but you, I, I got to finish reading the rest of the book, and there was a story yeah. that you told. Of, I, and when I first sent out the questions, I'd only gotten the first couple of chapters. I'm like, well, we're never going to be able to cover more than the first couple of chapters. <laughs> but, but you write a story in there about the neighbors that were involved in helping you get your new car. In, in in the car that you're driving, and you went through that whole story of understanding the neighborhood that came together for that car that you now drive. Can you explain, because that idea of neighbor was a, was just a beautiful picture of the global neighborhood that we live within. Yeah, I love how you said global neighborhood, because can you imagine, never before in human history that I'm aware of, uh, could we love our neighbor that is not just immediately proximate, but literally around the globe for our monetary economic system of exchange? So what I try to say there is just, uh, and this could be true of anything we take for granted, a pen, a pencil, a, uh, an iPhone. Uh, one of the things we live every day, I drive with this car, and uh, all the people who, out of love for me, maybe millions who didn't know me from those who designed it, those who produced it, those who shipped it, those who maintain it, those who license it. I mean, they service it. I mean, just everything, wash it. Uh, all of them are exhibiting neighborly love, and they're communicating love to me as a neighbor to meet a need I have through the value they add to my life. So it's truly amazing to think of the great commandment through the lens of the modern economy to love our neighbor. And never before have we had the capacity to do it uh, at a level, that, yeah, of a global level, uh, and that stuns me when we think about what it means to love our neighbor. Many neighbors we might not personally meet, but we love in God's name because of the work we do for them. 
Right. And, and when you look at a car, it really encompasses so much because parts for that car come from yes. all over the yes. globe. And, and it really it really pulls that together. It's a great picture because most things that we buy don't come from so many different places, but they really do. I mean, a car comes from so many in so many places. Your book, your brand new book, The Economics of Neighborly Love, it's it's eye opening and it will be eye opening for years to come for Christ followers to that they really need to understand economics, but the whole financial system from God's perspective, as you have been leading your congregation there in Kansas City, Missouri, for so many years, how do you see that your congregation living out what you are writing in this book? Well, I think we're just learning. I mean, we're just beginning to press into this. Uh, But I'd say, first of all, it has to come from a theological conviction centered in the scriptures, and particularly centered in the great commandment that... Uh, neighborly love is not just taking soup to a neighbor who's sick, which is important, uh, or mowing someone's lawn when they're on vacation. It is deeply woven into every moment of every day and what we do. So I think our congregation is beginning to see the Great Commandment in a much broader way and, and focused on uh, their work every day. Now, much of their work is not monetized, but much of it is. And so to begin to see the economy, the economic exchange, uh, as truly a gift from God in which we love others, in which we honor God and love others, really opens people's eyes to the importance of economic life. You know, the Church has uh, been, I think, pretty good at understanding the importance of managing resources, right? We have Financial Peace University. We do a lot of things about how do you manage money well for the glory of God. What we haven't done a lot is to understand how to create economic capacity and build wealth for the glory of God and for our neighbor. And so I think people are beginning to see that I don't only need just compassion, I need capacity. And that's the thesis of the book, Jim. I mean, the thesis of the book is that uh, if we have compassion without capacity, we have frustration. If we have capacity without compassion, we have human alienation. That's the picture of the rich fool, right? But if we have compassion and capacity, then we have true human transformation. We have neighborly love. So that's, that's the thesis that's built around Luke chapter 10. And I think our congregation is beginning to see, wow, this has opened our eyes a whole new world and really brought tremendous meaning into my Monday life, even if I'm on an assembly line, you know, producing something that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. All right, Tom, I want to just step back to give people a little perspective. And people on, listeners to the show know that when I get a pastor on that understands our desperate need as Christ followers in the congregation to be equipped to go out into our workplaces each and every day, no matter what our workplaces are, this is something that you said right at the beginning of the book. Due, this is your words. Due to an impoverished understanding of Scripture, I had been perpetuating an improper dualistic Sunday-to-Monday gap through my teaching and my ministry. What do you mean by that, Tom? Well, what I mean by that is I uh, not paid close attention to all of Scripture uh, and the importance of creation in everyday life. I, I'd really not spend the time looking at the first chapters of Genesis, and if you get the first chapters of Genesis wrong, you get the rest of the Bible wrong. So that really impacted me, where I, I tended to think of the pastoral world as primarily uh, focused on what we did on Sunday and, and, and helping the Church come together in corporate worship, and that is important. But I didn't see how important all of life was uh, and how equipping God's people for all of life was. So it really stemmed from a, a poor theology that didn't take into kind of rich theology of creation, uh, if we think of creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation, I had really focused on really redemption, but in a min- in a minimized way. So I would just say it really came back to not really seeing what the Scripture taught, 
And if we don't see what the scripture teaches from Genesis to Revelation, then it then it malforms us and it really impoverishes our understanding of what a pastor is and what a pastor does. Uh, so what I was doing, again, as I said, is I would spend the majority of my time equipping people for the minority of their life. And I call that malpractice because that's what it was. I was committed to discipleship. It was just a very small sliver of discipleship of what God's Word calls us to do. So to put it simply, you help your congregation now connect with the here on Sunday with what they do in their 9 to 5. Yes, yeah, and that's a vital part of a pastor's calling, not just having a good Sunday worship service, but equipping people for Monday in their place of worship and work. I love your this next statement. I wrote it down. I don't normally do this, but I kept getting these statements from you in your book. I'm like, wow, this is just powerful stuff. All right. You go on to say the most powerful statement of all that I've read in all of your book. I just loved it. We have long neglected to rightly understand how the gospel speaks to every nook and cranny of life, including our work and economic systems. Boy, there's something you don't hear many church sermons about. That's it. it. I mean, that's it, really, isn't it? That's the reason so few people are interested in Jesus in church and in Christianity, because they haven't seen the connection between their faith and their economics and their work. Right, and when we think of the New Testament, that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation, the question is, what is salvation from and what is salvation for? And if we understand what salvation is for, then we understand the whole story of Scripture, that the gospel profoundly speaks into the life God has for us. A full life, a complete life, a seamless life uh, that impacts art and impacts commerce, the gospel does profoundly shape that, shape that. And if you just look at the New Testament, for example, the book of Colossians, it's very typical of Paul. He says, this is who we are in Christ. This is the, what the gospel does in our vertical relation with God. But it also has a profound implication on horizontal relationships. So he'll say, right, like in family, work, the gospel profoundly has implications for that. And he says, whatever you do, right, do it heartily unto the Lord. So the broad, comprehensive involvement of the gospel and how it changes our life is truly profound. One quick example, Ephesians 4.28, classic example of Paul. He talks about how the gospel changes, you know, in verse 29, my, my language. But before that, he says it changes my economic life. You remember that? It says, let the thief no longer steal. You remember that text, let the thief no longer steal, but let him work with his hand, laboring. You know, it's a great, work with his hand, so that he may have something to give to anyone in need. Just that verse unpacks the implications of the gospel to our hard work, to economic injustice of stealing and so forth, but also creating capacity so that we can be generous to anyone who has need. And just there, just that one little verse completely opens the door to faith, work, and economics how the gospel finally shapes it. Well, and honestly, Tom, I, I, I'm, you probably know the answer to this question. Why do so many pastors stray, not stray, that's the wrong word, um, stay away from, from talking about the gospel speaking into every nook and cranny of our lives and dealing with the gospel and our economics? Is it because they're not trained on this in seminary, or is it because they just it's such a big topic they're not sure how to approach it? I mean, why is it that... You know, in, in my 51 years of going to church, and I, I know my parents, been they drug me to church long before I came to Christ, I, I never heard a sermon on, on the practical application of the gospel to my everyday life, including my money. Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons, and I want to be charitable because I'm, I'm a pastor who is flawed, uh, <laughs> but I think there's several things. First of all, the pastors who love God's Word want to keep the gospel central. The challenge is, is the gospel not only, as I said, saves us from something, it saves us for. And we focus more on saving from, which is very legitimate, from 
sin and death and a future eternal separation from God. That's important. But we have not spent enough time thinking how the gospel saves us for something, not just after we die, but now. So I, I think there are, there are big reasons why our training, our mindset, our emphasis on the eternal at the expense of the temporal. And I would say also, many of us have not really thought carefully about the whole scripture narrative uh, and how that should shape our theology. Many of us have a very poor understanding of Genesis 1-3. through And if we do, then we don't have a rich understanding of how the gospel profoundly speaks into Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in all dimensions. Well, and we, Martha and I got the broadcast a couple weeks ago from the uh, the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, and Ken Ham says just, Ken Ham and Mark yeah. Loy and those guys up there, they say, yeah. listen, you, everything, the Bible is based on, if you, Genesis 1 through 11 really sets up the rest of the Bible, and then we yeah. need to understand yeah. the depth of what's going on there. And I've never looked at it like that, but Ken Ham said it so many times, like, and Bodie Hodges, son-in-law, and I'm like, okay, i got to go back, and, and that's my study for the next month. I'm just going to study those 11 chapters and go, because he said it sets up everything for the entire rest of the scriptures. And, and that's powerful, and, because economic is, economics is dealt in there. The salvation of sure. us is in there. I mean, sure. it's, it's powerful. It's powerful stuff. And I'm not trying to be hard on pastors. I'm trying to be encouraging. No. And, I, and I think what's great is made to flourish is there to help pastors make these connections. And I love that. That and your book, this is going to be a phenomenal resource to get in the hands of pastors because it's going to open up their eyes. And I could think of a, about a 50 or 60 business people I know that will read this and go, huh, no kidding. I can connect. This makes total sense to me. Yeah. I never knew yeah, the gospel I, applied. That's it's going to blow their minds. Well, it's encouraging. I hope I hope God uses this work as much as we work on it. And I had a I was speaking in uh, Florida not too long ago uh, in your fair state. I think some of your fair state anyway. And uh, a professor from the University of Florida was at the meeting, and he said after the meeting, "This is why I came. I've never heard this spoken so powerfully. I've always known economics matters. I'm a Christian, but I never made a connection." why my work in economics matters so much. And so I do hope that it bridges areas where we've often neglected uh, and hope it has theological foundations that are compelling, but then bridges to economic reality every day. We hope it makes a big difference. Thanks for your enthusiasm about it. Well, you know, I get enthusiastic when I read stuff that inspires and, and touches me, and I'm an entrepreneur. So, I mean, I, I get this. Right. Hey, hey, today we're talking with Tom Nelson about his brand new book, The Economics of Neighborly Love. And we all know the parable this comes from. The, 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 the person, the, the uh, Pharisee that came up to Jesus said, hey, well, who's my neighbor then? If we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves, like the, the, it was a Pharisee, I can't remember exactly. It was a person of the law said, hey, well, who's my neighbor? Right. And this is all about that neighbor and what does that really look like all right so and i want to thank rod for calling in from temple terrace we'll get a book out to you very very shortly rod thanks for calling in and listening to the i work for him show okay tom here i think again probably again a blockbuster of all comments in your book and i I know i've said this already i know but understanding jesus's economic interest and competency should not be surprising when we remember that Jesus spent the majority of his life on earth learning carpentry and running a business. How is it that seminaries and colleges around the world fail to recognize that Jesus was a businessman and lived out connecting his faith and his work long before he was an itinerant preacher? Well, again, I want to be charitable here. Uh, <laughs> well, come on. I don't well. know if you get to be charitable. I don't know, Tom, if you get to be charitable, because I will tell you I have... I, I'm sorry, but I've never heard a sermon, somebody talking about Jesus' reputation in the marketplace. Never. 
Yeah. Well, one of the, and there's reasons why, I think, but I would just say, yeah, I think it is tragic. I think there are reasons why, because the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, spend so much time, as they ought to, focusing on the three years of Jesus' life that lead to the cross. Right. Uh, we don't want to anyway undershadow the cross and the resurrection as the core of the Gospel. But what happens is that because the Gospel writers do not spend a lot of time on the first 30 years of Jesus' uh, human existence on the earth, uh, we tend to diminish their importance. But if we look carefully, uh, the Gospel writers highlight it. Luke does, as well as Mark. And if we have the broad understanding of Scripture from creation to consummation, then it makes sense, and its importance rises if we understand that, that God would send His only Son to save the world and spend 30 of 33 years not as an itinerant rabbi proclaiming the Gospel, but living out the Gospel in a carpenter shop. It all makes sense if we understand the whole story. Leader of the Made to Flourish movement, Tom Nelson, about his latest book, The Economics of Neighborly Love, investing in your community's compassion and capacity. And we open up this half hour with an apology. As Martha texted me during the show and said, I was being very nice to Tom Nelson. Tom, I apologize. Martha said I needed to let you share more of your heart, and I interrupted, and so I apologize. I get excited, and most of it is driven by just disappointment that I wasted so many of my Christ-following mm-hmm. years not living my faith out in my workplace because I didn't know the things that you know now. And so I apologize. Please forgive me because oh. I didn't mean to be rude at all. No apology needed. I'm, I'm thrilled to have the conversation with you, and we were just saying how important it is to think about the gospel speaking to every nook and cranny. A lot of pastors don't think that way. So I'm delighted to be on your show, and hopefully this can encourage people. All right. So in my opinion, I think that you're likely maybe to get thrown out of some accepted religious organizations with this book because of this book, because you touch on subjects hardly hardly heard often. You know, because you because you say in there, if we're going to love our neighbor well, we must not only manage our financial resources well, we must also have ample financial resources to manage. So how does our lifestyle reflect our relationship with the Lord and get in the way of us being readily able to help our neighbor as a good Samaritan did? I mean, that's really what this is all about, the economics of neighborly love. Yeah, there are two things I think that are really important in the capture is First of all, we were created to cultivate blessings from the created order. In other words, we were created to create wealth, not for our own self-indulgence, but Genesis reminds us that we were to cultivate and keep the garden. And when Eve came on the scene, when we became a community, that means we have an economy. We share value with one another, we share what we do, and we move from the basic ingredients of culture to making more important things. You know, for example, uh, we have wheat, but we make bread, right? So it's a sense that we create value for others, and that we were created to do this, to be fruitful. And fruitfulness is not just intimacy with God, as central as that is. Fruitfulness is productivity. So we were created to be productive. Uh, And so out of that productivity, some of that is monetized in an economic way, and we share that with others in a modern economy. So I think, just to say, first of all, we were created to be productive uh, and to add value to others by cultivating blessings from creation. But also... Uh, we are to build a simple life, I think, so we have margin, so we can be generous. If we spend all our resources, our economic wealth, on ourselves, then we do not have the resources to share with others. So I think that's both, is we want to build capacity, but also want to manage what wealth we have so that we can do it in generous ways, in wise, generous ways. Well, and I think that margin, you know, I learned more about margin after I went through Crown Financial Ministries back in the 90s, right. and I know that that's, that's lost a little of its luster, although it's still a phenomenal study if we could get people to teach it. But before that, I, Martha and I lived without margin. 
we we didn't have margin in our mm-hmm. marriage. We we, mm-hmm. we spent everything we had, and at times we spent more than we had. Uh, so it is that living with margin, with the idea that that margin is for somebody else. That's a powerful concept for a Christ follower. We we all need to understand that everything we're earning is not for us. But it's not bad to spend some of it on us. But it's not all for us. Yeah, one of the tragedies uh, is if we do not have margin. We cannot really enjoy the blessings of generosity. Jesus said, right, Paul quotes him, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, there are many ways to be generous, including monetarily. But it's interesting that Jesus says to the Ephesian elders before he leaves, hey, don't forget the poor, don't forget the needy, make sure you give generously. And that's an economic context. So I'm saying if people live a marginless life, they cannot experience the joy of economic generosity, which we were created to have. So that we miss out. Not only do other people miss out, but we miss out on the joy of being generous. We were created to be generous. And that's something that you, we often hear sermons about tithing uh, and about tithing to the church, but we, often, we don't often hear about the incredible benefits of being generous and living generously with our money and with everything else, mm-hmm. our time, mm-hmm. because of it is more blessed to give than to receive. I mean, it truly is. Uh, and it has so many repercussions in our lives, uh, but that's a concept. A lot of times the churches focus on the tithing to help the church stay floating, but not to talk on the absolute positive benefit on the giving portion on the on the giver. Yeah, we were created to love God and love our neighbor, and when we do both of those well, we find great joy in that and great blessing. And part of loving our neighbor, as we talk in the book, is the sense of creating capacity and economic generosity and justice. You know, you you say in there that God created us as his image bearers with work in mind. We know that. You've Mm -hmm. stated that in in a couple of books, your last book, Work Matters, and of course this one again. And then you go on to say an important aspect of being an image bearer of God is to work and to create value by serving others, which God has done and Jesus has done and demonstrated, and to do this within our collaborative economic system. Now, a lot of people don't even understand what that means, the collaborative economic system. What do you mean by the collaborative economic system, first of all. And second of all, how do you mean that we create value in serving others within this system? How do, how do Christ followers really par- play a part in this? Yeah, well, in a modern economy, unlike a long time ago, you know, let's just say we have a cow and we, we, we want to share the milk with a neighbor. I mean, it was a one-to-one kind of thing. You know, you give so much milk and I work for you, it's bartering. But in a modern, modern economy through money and exchange, we can take the value we create. Let's say we're a farmer and have a cow, but we also need an iPhone, right? I mean, it's the same kind of thing. So the modern economy allows this amazing exchange to take place in a wide variety of ways where we can ex- add value to another person where we don't have to, you know, barter a sheep for a cow. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So there's amazing ways now from the modern economy that we uh, have our needs met. We can get things, right? We get value from others. If they make an iPhone or they create bread for us or whatever, and we do this. So I'm just saying the modern economy is an amazing exchange medium where we love our neighbor and really serve our neighbor in tangible ways that is much more than just bartering, you know, a sheep for a cow. That doesn't work very well uh, for very long. So having a means of exchange, that's what economy is, and money is a means of exchange or exchanging value back and forth, is an amazing gift to a neighbor uh, to help care for them and meet their needs. It's stunning when you think about it. It is stunning. It's actually a little bit hard to picture. You'd almost need like a whiteboard to really understand this, but it is every time we buy something, we're blessing a neighbor. 
even if it's in a small way. And every time that we give something, we're blessing a neighbor. But yet, I love, we also know, because of what we've seen in the last 60 years on the war on poverty, that that just giving people stuff doesn't solve the problem. You mentioned mm-hmm. in the book about a day yeah. that you and Liz walked through a dilapidated, neglected area on Prospect Avenue. I imagine that must be either, was that in Kansas City, Missouri, or Kansas City, Kansas? It's in Kansas City, Missouri, yeah. Okay. You mentioned that in 25 years of living in the Kansas City area, you'd never walked through that area. What did you learn, and how did that impact you? What, what have you done with that knowledge? Well, I think what we learned from it is that we had driven through the, a neighborhood that was very under-resourced, but we never put boots on the ground. We never felt the um, hopelessness, the despair, the struggle in an under-resourced area. And I think the biggest thing is that for many of us, not all of us, but in my context, it's very easy to have what I call cultural insularity, where we're just insulated from the poor, from people who have a lot of financial needs. Um, and we need to get out of that uh, if we have sort of a culture, if we don't run into people who are under-resourced financially or economically. So it really opened our eyes to really feel, touch the despair of economic impoverishment, spiritual impoverishment, and, and it made a commitment for us to say, what can we do as individuals, as in a church, to really love our neighbor on Prospect Avenue? And clearly, that has a deep economic um, commitment because there are no jobs in that area. There needs to be job training. There's a lot of things that are not there that make economic well-being almost impossible. So it really makes you go back to the ground floor and say what needs to take place in a community for it to flourish. And one of those is the sense of economic vitality. When that's gone, the neighbor profoundly uh, disintegrates. Right. It just makes, uh, you, it makes us think our economics matter so much. Well, and you mentioned a little later on in the book that the developers that developed certain areas of the Kansas City area did yeah. this on purpose. They built in cultural insularity, as you say. They insulated certain cultures from other cultures and, and intentionally kept them out of those areas. They did it on purpose. Yeah, it's one of the saddest histories of Kansas City. It's not the only city, but there were actually mm-hmm. covenants against uh, Jewish and uh, Jewish people and African Americans that couldn't live there. Uh, I mean, again, thankfully that is not the case anymore. But the residual impact of such evil, of racism and systemic injustice, still lingers in the inequity of our educational systems and a dividing line between what's called Truce Avenue. So, I mean, as Christians, people of God, we need to bridge that. And the gospel not only reconciles us with God, it reconciles us with our neighbor. It has a horizontal dimension. And we need to address those injustices, systemic injustice. And I talk about that in the book. But, yeah, it's very true in Kansas City. Uh, history shapes the present. And we have a well, very, very bad history here. And we're trying to make a difference in changing that. And really, that, that history is all over the country. We've been, we've been throwing money at a problem that we needed to be bringing Jesus to the problem and the gospel of the problem. Because as you said earlier in the book, the gospel applies to all the nooks and crannies in our lives. And I love when you started highlighting ministries that were going and doing the things that you were talking about doing in that part of Prospect Avenue. We're going to talk about that when we come back. We're talking with Tom Nelson about his brand new book, The Economics of Neighborly Love, Investing in Your Community, Compassions and Capacity. What was the story of the Good Samaritan really all about when we talk about who is our neighbor? How does that apply to economics? Did you realize? I mean, there's so much depth to that story, but we need to understand first and foremost that 
the Good mm-hmm. Samaritan had a job. And in that job, he was able to not only make money for himself, but also had margin. Margin help provide for the injured person and also to provide for his ongoing care. And he had time to take off to do those things. And, and that's the economics of neighborly love that you and I have been given gifts, talents, and abilities, and those aren't all for us. Therefore, our neighbors as well. And how do those things get spread across in a global economic system? We're talking today with Tom Nelson about his book, The Economics of Neighborly Love. Tom, we're talking right before the break how you and Liz walked through this neighborhood on Prospect Avenue in Kansas City and how your eyes were opened to the blight of poverty. That The poverty is not really, right. an, it's an economic condition, but it's really also a condition, it's probably more so a condition of the heart that's perpetuated by so many of the systems that we put in place how has your church coordinated i mean after you after that walk through with you and liz how has that impacted your church and what have you guys done to start working alongside churches in that prospect prospect uh, uh avenue neighborhood i think we first of all grasp that poverty is a is a relational poverty with god with others in the world and i think that's where we started that that all of us are relationally impoverished. But then we move to the economic area, and I think what it's done for us as a church is we've taken more seriously collaborative partnerships in our city with government, with for-profit sector, for non-profit sectors. We host common good conferences and, and conversations about how do we come together and collaborate for the good of the city. So I think it's made us more collaborative, more aware of the challenges of rebuilding a whole community and neighborhood from the ground up when it comes to family life, to character, to virtue, to job training, to education. I think the complexity, you know, it's easy for a community to disintegrate. The challenge is to reintegrate it. Uh, And obviously the gospel and spiritual wholeness is at the center of it. But I, I think we are much more, we have a much longer view in Kansas City and a much more collaborative view and a more, much more collective view of how we're all working together to try to bring greater shalom to our city. Uh, so I would say walking through that neighborhood, first of all, captured our hearts to the desperation of under-resourced neighborhoods and the desperation of human poverty, but also called us to more of a collaborative work, because it's going to take a lot of work to see transformation on all levels of relationships with God, relationships with others, and relationships with work. And that really is the work of the church that really is designed for us as the body of Christ to meet those needs. And and sure there's places for the government, as you say, there's places for government programs, there's places for things like that, but really Mm -hmm. it's the church at work bringing the truth of the gospel that will really bring transformation to those areas that not throwing money at it is not going to solve that problem. Yeah. The greatest poverty is the spiritual one and the greatest poverty, economic poverty relief program is a job with dignity. So, I mean, getting a job, and that means entrepreneurship, creating capacity, creating businesses, job creation, job training. I mean, that's, that's those together come, come together in spiritual formation as well as uh, virtue formation and hard work and economic opportunity. It all has to be a part of the package. Yeah, I, I so totally agree. Yeah, just as an aside, inside that chapter, when you're talking about that, that walk down Prospect Avenue, you mentioned a ministry that is 
go is chasing after those needs mm-hmm. called Hope Works on the yeah. south side of Chicago. And I reached out to their the executive director because of your book, Rebecca King, and we're going to bring them on the show and talk Wonderful. about what they're doing because they have a model that they want to reproduce across the country in doing what they're doing. I just absolutely, it, it's fascinating. So thank Wonderful. you. For, thanks for yep. putting lots of great examples in the book. All right. I think it all comes down to this this word flourishing. You know, you wrote you quote John ten ten in the book early on. You then go on to say, which means Jesus said the the uh, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so that you might have life and live it to the fullest. That that's the Jim Brangenberg pretty close. Yeah. You then go on to say Jesus came so that we might flourish in all dimension of our human existence. So this isn't just about money. What is flourishing all about? Well, I think one of the things, I love that text, one of the things I think we need to understand is that flourishing involves living fully into God's design. Uh, and at the heart of that is that we were created not only to be faithful, but to be fruitful. So what does fruitfulness mean? Jesus said, we abide in him. Remember in the Upper Room Discourse, we abide in him, we bear much fruit. Uh, a flourishing life is a fruitful life. And there's at least three or four components of that biblically. One is deeper intimacy with God. Right? When we're fruitful, we have the fruit of the Spirit. We have a deeper intimacy relationship. But fruitfulness, biblically, all the way through is also productivity in our various vocations that we are adding value and being productive for the glory of God and the good of others. But it's also involves with neighborly love, and that's what we talk about, that fruitfulness has the ability of being both compassionate and having capacity. So a flourishing life is a life that is intimate with God and intimate with others, Right? That's the spiritual component, relation component, but also productive in our vocational calling, that we are, are deeply productive and fruitful. We're bearing much fruit for the glory of God. And in that fruitfulness, we love our neighbor and serve our neighbor. So a flourishing life is a relational life that's deeply connected and integral, but it's also a productive life. So often we think of flourishing as separated from fruitfulness, but fruitfulness of productivity and work and in vocational stewardship is at the heart of bearing much fruit for Jesus. And I think that opens the door for people this fruitful life really impacts Monday. What I do Monday, uh, whether I'm paid or not paid, is deeply embedded in whether I live a flourishing, fruitful life. Well, and you say in the book that, you know, being made in God's image means that our lives matter, both in who we are and what we do. And that goes back to that whole fruitful thing. Most, but most of us believe, though, that our lives would matter more if we were, if we were doing like pulpit ministry or international missions. But that's not true, that we can be fruitful and faithful no matter what we do. Isn't that true? Yeah, I think that's one of the greatest dangers is that people would compartmentalize their life and say people who are just in a pastoral role or a missionary role, that's really important, that's really faithful, that's really fruitful. That The problem with that is that fruitfulness there is very reduced. Fruitfulness is much more than that, as I mentioned earlier. So yes, every vocation is done unto God, for God's glory is uh, highly valued and highly worthy. Uh, interesting that Jesus said in the parable of talents, didn't he? He, he used uh, financial managers. Pretty amazing. Uh, and the three managers, right, are entrusted with different amount of resources, and two of them receive great commendation, right, both faithful and fruitful. And the example Jesus uses, it's not surprising, he was a business person. Uh, it's an economic parable uh, about the parable of the talents. Uh, and uh, they're affirmed strongly for their good economic work, their portfolio management of wealth, and it's tied to uh, future rewards in heaven. So uh, it's sad that there has been this distortion, but all work done unto God for God's glory 
uh, is, is deemed with high honor and high worth. When you share the your heart with other pastors, pulpit pastors, the, and the ideas behind what you've written in your books, work in your book, work matters, and and now the economics of neighborly love. How de- describe the experience as they start to see things that God has revealed to you? Well, when we go back to the scriptures, Jim, I mean that's where our foundation is. Not my wisdom or insight. When you start looking at the scripture all the way across, I think lights really come on. I mean, what I call coherence. Uh, there, there's a great sense of continuity to the Scripture. And when pastors begin to see that from the biblical text, from the Scriptures, it's not a fad. When we look at what the Scriptures teach, then I find pastors go, wow, the Bible teaches this. Uh, and then the question is, what are the implications for my faithfulness as a pastor, right, and fruitfulness? That's when it really gets interesting, Jim. I mean, that's when pastors got to go, whoa, I need to change my language. What does that mean for preaching? What does that mean for budgets? The implications uh, are profound. And then when I meet with pastors who begin to be more faithful and fruitful according to what the Bible teaches, there's great joy in it, because they're more aligned with God's design, and their congregations flourish. When clergy flourish, congregations flourish. When congregations flourish, culture flourishes. It's just that way. <laughs> I love that. And when in cultures flourish, you're talking about the communities are impacted. I mean, when the a church starts to... Th- yep. Yeah. Yep. When you look at the work that you guys are doing and, and trying to do in coordination with the inner city or the urban areas of Kansas City, right. how have you seen that light go on in your congregation's eyes? Well, what's the impact on how they handle what they have been entrusted with, what they've been asked to steward? Yeah, we have campuses around the city, but let's just say they're more urban. But suburban ones particularly, I would say here's the big, big aha. Many of our congregational members who are in a more um, highly resourced area, can I use that language, or highly resourced context, have often thought about their service to the under-resourced as doing you know, a soup kitchen or taking turkeys and food for the poor, economically poor, uh, at Thanksgiving. And we do that. But I think the shift has been where people are going to say, hey, I have capital, I have access, I have entrepreneurial skills, I have business skills, I can... I can not just only take a turkey or do soup in a soup kitchen, as good as that is, I have influence to help bring capacity, job training, entrepreneurship, structural change to the It's fantastic. Uh, Tom, i got to say goodbye. Right? We're almost out of time. Tom okay. Nelson, thank you so much for being on iWork for him today. Just remember, I work for him. <laughs>